Dear friends in Christ, a modern fable, sometimes referred to as the tools quarrel, relates a conference taking place in the carpenter's workshop before the day's work begins. Brother Hammer, who has the chair, when a point of privilege is advanced, he must leave the shop because he is too noisy. In a huff, Brother Hammer replied, If I must leave, then Brother Scratchall must go as well, for he is so insignificant. He only leaves a little mark. Brother Scratchall rose and countered very well, but Brother Screwdriver must be turned out as well. He goes around and around and around and never gets anywhere. Brother Screwdriver, who was in truth a little turned around, complied. If you wish, but Brother Plain must leave as well, for all his work is just on the surface. He lacks any real depth. Brother Plain, who did not take this smoothly, in retort demanded, Well, then Brother Ruler will have to depart as well from the shop. He is always measuring everything as though he's the only one who's right. Brother Ruler, drawing himself up to his full measured height, bristled. Brother Sandpaper must go as well. He is rougher than he ought to be, always rubbing people the wrong way. Amid all this quarreling, the carpenter from Nazareth walked into the shop to begin the day's work. He put on his apron and went to his bench and began to make a pulpit from which the gospel might be preached to the poor. He used the hammer, the scratch hall, and the screwdriver, and the plane, and various other tools. After the day's work was done and the pulpit finished, the carpenter hung up his apron and left the shop, gently closing the door behind him. Into the deathly quiet that descended on the once busy workshop, Brother Hammer arose and said, I perceive that we are all laborers together with him. Dear friends, our text this morning from Paul's first letter to the Corinth sounds an awful lot like that conference going on in the workshop before the carpenter got there. Gregory Lockwood translates, beginning at verse 11, For it was made clear to me concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is that each of you is saying, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Things likely fell out this way. Paul had founded the church in Corinth, and a significant group had stuck with him. Paul planted, Apollos watered, as he will say in chapter 3. There was, this was sometimes later, and Apollos, the gifted and eloquent Alexandrian, made Paul's preaching seem, at least to some, to be rather pedestrian. We shouldn't be surprised. You all get the opportunity to hear a variety of preachers. It's only natural to compare their styles and personalities, but how easily that can pass into juvenile factions and rivalry. I'm with Apollos. Paul's preaching, Paul's plodding along puts me to sleep. Oh, yeah? Well, I was baptized by Paul, the Cadillac of christening. Apollos' baptism is bush league. Oh, really? Another voice comes in. Ever hear of Peter, the prince of apostles? He's a Jew's Jew, not like that pork-eating Apollos and that turncoat Paul. Are you guys even a part of the new covenant? Meanwhile, there seems to be a fourth party, clearly reacting against the other three with a critical attitude towards their faithful pastors. Paul, Peter, Pope, whatever. I've got no creed but Christ. 
This group seems to be smugly asserting themselves as being more spiritual because they had, at least in their pietistic minds, direct access to Christ apart from any human-mediated tradition. To slip into a 21st century mode, we don't need your priestcraft pastor. We get Jesus straight from the tap. Just me and my application Bible. I'm a self-feeder feeding on Christ in my heart. Paul opposes them as well. But staying on the coast, we're immediately inclined to make the connection between the fractured church of today. I don't know the statistics up on Long Beach Peninsula, but here in Tillamook County, we have more than 20 distinct Christian churches. The other Lutheran church is just four blocks up 4th Street. But a word of caution. Sometimes tags and labels are foisted upon us against our will. Luther was appalled that his name was used to describe a portion of the body of Christ. He asked, How then should I, poor, stinking, maggot fodder that I am, come to have men called the children of Christ by my wretched name? Not so, my dear friends. Let us abolish all party names and call ourselves Christians. But returning to our text, Paul's not worried about what's being preached around the corner at the temple of Aphrodite or Apollo or in the local synagogue. It's the factionalism, the personality clicks within that drive the opening four chapters of this letter. I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Peter, a pox on all your houses. I'm for Christ. There's no indication of Paul or Apollos ever being at odds. Paul and Peter knocked heads at Antioch. But the truth of the gospel went out and, and Peter relented. Paul's response to the information about Chloe's people takes the form of three rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Three questions, three resounding no's. Could there possibly be a separate Pauline Christ, an Apollos Christ, a Petrine Christ, or an unmarked Christ? Of course not, so knock it off. In our day, we might speak of a stained glass Christ, a Christ who is the model of moral virtue. This Christ, or rather this religion, is no different than most world religions that center around ethics and behavior. It's the first plank of what Christian Smith, in his study of American young people, called the moralistic therapeutic deism, the practical or the practiced religion. And then there's the bellhop Christ. You know this guy, right? The name it and claim it gospel of success. Interestingly, this false Christ finds its greatest audience at either end of the economic spectrum. Those who are desperately in need of first article gifts and those who are abundantly blessed with the same. Or how about the, the golden rule Christ? The do unto others as you would have them do unto you approach to religious diversity? Lockwood observes, Paul's plea for unity does not mean he envisions a colorless uniformity with no room for individual insights and accents. On the other hand, neither would he have condoned the principle of reconciled diversity, the pluralism in doctrine and practice endorsed by modern ecumenical movement. All of these Christs, the stained glass Christ or the bellhop Christ or the golden rule Christ, are not the Christ of the gospel. That Christ in his work, are the contents of the gospel. Paul, for his part, would never forget the Damascus Road experience. To the Galatians, he wrote, You have heard about my former life in Judaism, 
how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. If ever there was a divider of the church, well, Paul was it. He divided, conquered, arrested, dragged off to prison those who followed the way, who worshipped this dead Messiah, until along the way to Damascus, the Messiah blinded him and knocked him to the ground. But with that blinding also came healing. God sent Ananias to heal him by laying on hands and speaking God's words. If ever there was an unsung hero of the faith, Ananias gets my voice. Lord, I have heard how much evil this man has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who follow on your, call on your name. Go, is the Lord's simple reply. He is a chosen instrument. And so he does. And scales fall from Paul's eyes, and he's baptized into the name of the living Messiah. Paul understood this Christ. He understood because he experienced the healing power of the gospel. When Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra, he saw a man crippled from birth sitting to the side, listening to the word, to the gospel. And seeing that he had faith to be made well, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he did. In fact, Luke records that he leaped up and began to walk. And the crowds reacted, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. No, 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 Paul says, tearing his clothes. But we, 2,000 years removed, missing this story is the order of the healing, the power of the gospel. The working of the preached word comes first. The working of the spirit on the heart of this man that Paul's, is what Paul sees. The healing of a soul estranged from God by sin, now restored at the cross and sealed in the open tomb. Seeing that, he calls the man's faith to action to live in the light of Christ's presence. Paul brings the same message to Corinth. It's the same message that's proclaimed here. There at the font, the old Adam was drowned and a new creation brought forth. Here at the rail. We eat and drink the medicine of immortality. You are healed, made whole in the blood of the Lamb. But the healing of individuals is not God's end game. In our healing, we are brought into community. Our healing should, it must, lead to the healing of our koinonia, our fellowship, our congregation. Paul makes his appeal to Corinth and to Tillamook in verse 10. I urge you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you say the same thing, that there be no factions among you, but that you be restored to the same mind in the same conviction. God has blessed us with a rich diversity of individuals and talents. Our differences can divide. But where there is consensus in confession, when we say the same thing, it yields a unity of Christian peace. Compromise in doctrine leaves the church in pieces and souls confused. Brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, God placed one name on us in baptism. His, one people, one body, Christ's body. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There is no rich or poor, no young or old, no smart or challenged, no Republican or Democrat, no fit or handicapped. There is only healing. Every day, we 
are washed by the water that flows from his side. Every day we are made clean by the blood that dripped from his wounds. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, Paul would stress to the Ephesians. That is the drama, the reality, the hope, the truth. All disciples are called to play out here, which is why Christians gather together and confess the same creedal truth. Put their lips on the same chalice. Dine on the same loaf. Receive the same grace. Share in the same Holy Spirit. Exchange the same peace. What happens as we gather as church here on Sunday morning or any other time that we gather is a foretaste, which is what is going to happen out there on the last day. This will not be the result of any worldly government, but the result of the one who governs from on high. To paraphrase Paul, let us be of one mind and one judgment. The carpenter did not hammer with a saw or chisel with a plane, but with all of them he built a pulpit that the gospel might be preached to the world. He built a church. That is, he gathered a people to himself. He gathered them that sin-sick souls might receive healing. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, use us as your instruments to extend the reach of your perfect healing. Amen.